on today's episode. The second aspect of what could we see from here or is a change in consumer behavior as a result of this. So the ability to engage online, the ability to overcome either digital or vernacular language illiteracy, innovation around payment systems or smosses of technology, and then finally innovation of, of localized solutions for localized problems in many of these markets. Welcome to the Active Share podcast that explores less obvious investing insights in a world that's always changing. I'm your host, Hugo Scott Gall. Today, I'm joined by my colleague, global research analyst, Jay Kanan, to discuss connected commerce in the next installment of our Convergence series, which examines five growth themes that are shaping the future of investing. In this episode, we'll cover connected commerce, which basically covers the whole architecture of the digital economy. Jay covers small cap technology, media and communication services companies. Jay, hello, welcome. It's great to have you here. Thank you, Hugo. It's wonderful to be here. Good. Well, we both agree on that. Let's get started. So I had a go very briefly and no doubt inadequately to describe and define connected commerce. You can do much better. What is connected commerce? Hugo, we think of connected commerce as an integrated shopping experience. So we think about it as anytime, anywhere shopping. Now, what used to be two discrete and disparate experiences, one offline and one online, has now come together in an omni-channel world, which one might rather refer to as bricks and clicks, for that matter. So bringing together bricks and mortar, as well as uh, clicks and, and the connected commerce environment. Now, why this is important is essentially this connects the end-to-end consumer journey across both offline as well as online mediums, and then collects the data and then uses learnings and insights from that data in order to affect future consumer behavior, in order to link back to payment systems. And much of these insights are then fed back into the top of funnel, which then creates a flywheel effect of sorts, which can drive even more monetization for merchants, can drive a happier and more enjoyable experience for the customer, and can create reduced friction in this process. Great, that all makes sense. So I guess the reason we're talking about this is because it is quite new. I think I think you're going to agree with me. The assumption that, well, we just took the system, the architecture from the old physical world and just recreated it click by click instead of brick by brick in the digital world is actually wrong. This is this is a new way of doing things or a new way of organizing things. Is that right? I think that's fair, Hugo. So one would say that we bring together the best of both of the offline as well as the online journeys and experiences and then connect them in a way in which they can talk to each other so they can share insights from what a consumer likes offline to what he or she may like online. So if you prefer apparel of a certain brand or a certain size offline, there's a good chance you likely want a similar experience or have similar interests online as well. So what used to happen disparately when when both these systems or ecosystems didn't talk to each other is now coming together with an ecosystem or an architecture and we can go into that shortly where they talk to one another and and where we can derive insights and drive learnings and therefore drive predictability in what the consumer might want in both these systems and if if we think about the whole architecture who is really sitting at the middle of this who has got the sort of big central role or the must-have pipes that it all has to go through 
So if we think about the value chain here in, in connected commerce, we can think about merchants at one end, we can think about consumers at the other, and perhaps a wide set of intermediaries in the middle who often facilitate interactions of connected commerce between the merchant and the consumer. So when we think about the merchant, probably the, the new age infrastructure involves enablement type software or services. So allowing them to understand what the consumer likes, allowing them to track consumer journeys offline, use those insights online, and then a lot of software that just helps reduce friction. So enablement in terms of a digital point of sales, enablement in terms of connecting with uh, financial ecosystems, and then of course, customer management. This can be a traditional CRM system, but it can also be managing loyalty systems, tracking what consumers do across other websites, targeted advertising, so on and so forth. At the other end is the consumer. And for the consumer journey, why this is important is so that they can then have pipes or, or payment intermediaries. So the same way they pay offline is a way they pay online. And if that is not the case, especially given regulatory constraints or, or countries in which these ecosystems operate, then that can change using intermediaries. And intermediaries, finally, Hugo, is are essentially either payment platforms or other forms of value chain intermediaries. So these can be logistics, they can be credit, they can be simple pipes or rails in different countries. So think of them as, as either payment type platforms that enable payment transactions to take place, or even mobile e-wallets in, in certain types of countries, which are enablement for consumers who do not have access to credit cards, debit cards, and the traditional banking ecosystem. You touched on it a bit there, but I'm very interested in the question of is this all now done because certainly digital commerce the online economy feels very smooth and frictionless versus how it used to feel but one of the ways we always like to think about growth is by asking the questions of where are there still frictions where are there problems to solve so will we look back say 10 years time and say Phew, system back in 2020 2021 was pretty antiquated it had these frictions these pain points it was slow how is it going to change how will you know when it's done what are the still big problems and pain points to, to deal with i believe we're still at the early innings when it comes to either online or omni-channel penetration of the commerce opportunity now if we look back perhaps 11 or 12 months we'd say that the current environment especially when when many of us were at home accelerated the pace of many consumers transacting online for the first time ever. But even having said that, less than a, a fourth or a fifth of global commerce is conducted over the internet. And it's funny, but but I remember what the CEO of Stripe, which is a, a large payments company often says, which is their mission as a company, is to increase the GDP that is transacted over the internet. I'm paraphrasing here, but essentially what that means is that there is a lot more here to go when it comes to, to connected commerce and the online experience. Now, what can we think of when you know the, the jobs that are done by these either intermediaries or platforms going forward and, and how that can change? Well, the simple low-hanging fruit here is, is reducing friction. And irrespective of what we think, there is increased friction between either the different platforms, the types of authentication we need, the types of payment methods, the commissions that are paid, and simply the, the leakage in many ways of a dollar that is spent by a consumer versus the residual part of that dollar that actually reaches the merchant. And to the extent we can create more efficiencies across the system, the consumer and the merchant can probably transact at a price that is 
much closer to each other than what it is today. And both can have a more enjoyable experience, more insightful experience, where you can have more targeted products and services at consumers who can then purchase them either cheaper, efficiently, or faster in a more enjoyable manner. So far, we've talked in a sort of generalized way, but I wonder if you could talk a bit about the difference between developed markets, emerging markets. By that, we mean Europe and US versus kind of rest of the world, but certainly Asia, how how the architecture looks different and why it looks different. And, and I, I suppose here I'm really getting at this idea of leapfrogging. When you didn't have to disrupt something that wasn't there, it's a lot easier. That's right. So one easy analogy here that, that we could point to when thinking about how this opportunity set might play out in developing countries or in emerging markets versus those that are developed is to look at the spread of, of telecommunication services over the past three or five decades. So we had fixed line telephony in in developed markets, uh, which is essentially a landline that you could use at at home or in the office. And then that transition towards uh, mobile phone penetration, which at the first instance were were just feature phones where you could either text or make voice calls. And then finally, the advent of data. Now in emerging markets, we leapfrogged much of that. So we went from from absolutely no connection. So maybe snail mail or, or telegram services, or for the most part, extremely, I'd say, connectivity that wasn't first rate to smartphone data and the availability of cheap data, the availability of fast data, and what was often populations which which either didn't have access to, to much of the online world, now coming online for the first time ever. And as they say, although consumer wallets are different in, in different parts of the world, willingness, ability to engage, perhaps even transact in front of a screen is likely not different at the most primal level when we think about humans, our intent, and and much of our our needs and wants. So when we apply that analogy to connected commerce, I think what has largely changed or allowed for this leapfrogging is uh, the smartphone revolution. So whether it be increased smartphone penetration, the availability of cheap as well as access to to fast data, 4G for the most part today, but likely 5G in the future. And then of course, new and differentiated form of payments. Now in the emerging world, much of the population is is either underbanked or unbanked for the most part, which means that credit cards usage of of systems like PayPal is not something that those markets are are essentially used to. So what we've seen is is new innovative technology. So we think about mobile wallets, we think about easier payment access, anti-fraud systems, which are unique and differentiated in terms of what they target, who they target, and a lot of these connections with the online ecosystem. So online shopping experience, logistics infrastructure that it's connected to is very differentiated in, in emerging markets. Think about last mile access, non-standardized uh, logistics infrastructure, so on and so forth. So those are two or three examples where one needs more specific, uh, geography-specific use cases, as opposed to perhaps global cross-border payment providers or technology platforms, enablement software. Is one of the big areas of growth understanding behavior, consumer behavior, customer behavior, in terms of now, I guess in some ways we feel we understand it already versus where we were when things were essentially dumb. Someone bought something, but you got no feedback. You didn't understand the purpose. You didn't understand why they went to that place. You didn't understand what they were searching for. So in some senses, we you could argue there's quite a lot that's understood. But I wonder, back to my sort of question, in five years' time, 10 years' time, 
understanding intent, desires, predictive. Are we still quite early on that journey? And does, does that sort of tie back to what you were saying about the sort of the GDP of the internet? The GDP of the internet still might be quite early, still almost in its infancy, because there's a lot that we don't understand in terms of what you would ultimately any producer, any seller would like to know versus what they do know. That's still quite a big gap. That's right, Hugo. So a good way to to think about this might be to think about the the evolution of the advertising business model and and how that has transitioned as it relates to either improving the way one could measure the intent of the targeted audience and then relay that back to the top of funnel. So make advertising even more targeted, even better as a result of that. So back in the day, we had offline ads So at its most basic form. Think of a billboard that you and I drive by every day, and we see the same billboard all the time. Think of that as, as level one. Level two was then online, where it was more contextual. So if you went to a, a sports website, you saw an ad related to, to sport. If you went to an e-commerce website, you, you likely saw an ad related to, to apparel or, or some sort of shopping-related intent. So a little more contextual. We then went to search, which I, I define as, as probably level three, where depending on, on what you searched for, you found an ad which which was a little more targeted, but couldn't really capture ultimate intent because you often didn't transact at that level. We're now moving into level four or level five, which which I would argue on an absolute basis is, is still very early, where either merchants or ecosystems can track a consumer's journey. So they see some of your, your past behavior in terms of either transactions, intent, what you may be looking for, and then there's predictive analytics on that. Of course, well within the bounds of of what can be allowed in in a privacy-controlled and and sensitive environment, but that helps enhance the customer experience, also enhances intent for the consumer when it comes to to what they might be wanting to do. And I would say that's where we are today. Where can we go here from further? Well, we can do a lot more with intent. So we can have business models where essentially companies are paid based on on the return on investment you get for the marketing spend. So cost per converted customer as opposed to cost per either impression or cost per showing an ad. And and that's one example of of where we might be going forward. So we can do a, a lot more for that. Also, when it comes to merchants, which is the other stakeholder here in the ecosystem, you can have just-in-time inventory management and a lot more in terms of predictive behavior of a customer. Think about grocery online purchases when it came to the current environment. And a lot of retailers were quickly able to bring that up to speed and, and their inventory systems because grocery behavior, for the most part, is is repeatable, predictable. It's likely that you'll order the, the same amount of milk every week if if the number of folks in the household remain constant, right? So, so that's one example of, of how this can help transform inventory management and other logistics infrastructure for the merchant as well. So, so while you were talking there, I, I I began framing my next question, which wasn't my next question, but I changed my mind. It was really, as a technology analyst, the business of forecasting growth, where there's going to be growth is is really central because it's such a dynamic fast growing area how do you approach that task how do you approach the task of where to find growth across the broader tech spectrum i humbly submit that this is probably one of the most exciting parts of 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 what we do on a daily basis but at the same time challenging as well because this can 
go in, in so many different directions. So as much as we'd like to explore, we, we sometimes have to bring it back to either growing revenue pools and then investable, exploitable opportunity sets within them. So we'd say we, as a team, we, we often try to think about first principles. So we, we try and understand where growth is overall. So we think about the overall revenue pie and how this may either be growing in, in different aspects of the economy or shifting in many cases as a result of what is going on in in our case here in technology. So either advances or innovation, technological changes, this could be more of the same, this could be revolutionary or disruptive in many cases. So we often look at that as a starting point. Now, of course, alongside that, there are quite a few, I'd say breadcrumbs that, that we find along the way as we research. Now, this can be you know, thinking about or, or reviewing uh, funding activity. So, so we often look at what the smartest venture capitalists do or, or private equity investors, not necessarily as, as something we want to do, but but essentially as a guide for for what might be happening in, in changes in the economy. And then finally, I'd say we we enjoy learning. So we try and either speak with or learn from who we believe are, are the cleverest minds and use some of the best in the industry, whether they be academics or scientists or other industry entrepreneurs and innovative companies are, are seeing, doing, seeing, and then use some of that as a mosaic to, to identify patterns and start from there on. So it's the identifying of patterns. And I, I guess the thing that's one of the things that I've always found interesting and a sort of fascinating concept, this idea of recombinant innovation. When you take two things and put them together, they produce something that you wouldn't necessarily predict or know about. You know, obvious examples is all the platform apps that you can have on your phone are only really made able by communication technology, essentially 4G and now 5G. How do you think about this equation of problem to solve new technology, often a communication technology, and what that might lead to? Because it wouldn't necessarily always get you to a music streaming app or even something like a TikTok or even when the whole sort of Pokemon craze with augmented reality. So it's hard to know specifically what's going to happen, but how do you weigh the odds of a problem getting solved because the odds are now in favor of the problem being solved because of an unrelated technology? This sort of idea that when you put these things together, precisely unknowable things happen, but directionally knowable things happen. So I remember first thinking about this a, a few years ago because I think that the phrase recombinant innovation comes from, from the second machine age, which was a book whose, whose author taught it at school when I when I happened to be there at graduate school. So, so that's when I first heard about, you know, just combining and creating an innovative product by combining either components and systems that for the most part already existed. Of course, we've seen plenty of examples of that, as you rightly pointed out. We have various components of very often, like you said, communication technology, some advances thereof. So, so if we had to look back five or 10 years at a key starting point or a leading indicator of, of where we see recombinant innovation, much of that has been access to communication technology. So either becoming faster, more accessible, or cheaper for the most part. And waves of that continue to happen. Now that can be with, with next generation communications technology, but that can also be with inherent problems that exist in the world today, which are yet to be solved. So let's think about it from, from the consumer's perspective. If we think about leisure time in the world over the past 10 years, it's largely remained flat or, or time devoted to leisure. But the share of that time has largely moved online 
And a large percentage of that has increasingly, for the most part in various aspects of the world, moved towards either gaming or in, in its broadest bucket entertainment, which can be some combination of, of gaming, watching content, consuming content, either video or audio, so on and so forth. So what am I getting at with, with all of this is inherently the, the consumer's desire to either want or do something digitally today remains the same. And then when we put that together with a lot of these other elements, so you bring in commerce from one direction, so we all will continue to shop, think about gaming. We all, or many of us would, would like to entertain ourselves on a daily basis, gaming being one avenue for that. And then you bring yourselves either aspects of, of entertainment, so that can be music streaming, video consumption, so on and so forth. Put all of that together, and then very often now you have one platform that uses communications technology, but essentially is innovative because it solves different problems. So it takes up a, a fair amount of your leisure time, allows for entertainment, allows for commerce or shopping, and then uses some form of underlying payments technology to enable all of that. So this is a, this is a tough question, maybe not even a fair one, but when when you sort of put together all the growth themes that sit within your coverage, within the sort of broader tech sector, where do you think is underestimated? So let's start with, with the first part of that question, which is very broadly, if we had to classify or think about where growth could be as it relates to, to the technology sector, I'd probably bucket those into, into five categories, not necessarily exhaustive, but where we feel very excited. One I'd say is, is ubiquitous connectivity, so just more number of devices, more connections in the world. The second I'd say is, is digital enterprise 2.0, so more enterprises adopting digital infrastructure, cloud infrastructure for the most part, subscription type software services, platforms, infrastructure, so on and so forth. The third would probably be next generation computing. So the increase in both our, our capacity as well as the need to consume more processing power in the world today. And that's likely going to increase with, with the increased amount of data that is both created on a regular basis, but also consumed, researched, tracked, so on and so forth. The next we'd say is, is just the digital lifestyle. So think about the digitization of the consumer, more of regular daily services, whether they be classifieds or food delivery or, or practically anything that's consumption of entertainment, moving to the online world and technology enabling that. And then lastly, we'd say is, is a fair bit of, of deglobalization, and we've seen that for both geopolitical reasons, but also as a result of disruption in supply chains over the past year or so, increase in supply resilience with, with different parts of the world, increasing localized or accessible supply to, to technology-related infrastructure as, as a result of, of what is going on in the world today. Having said that and, and set the framework for, for where we think growth might be, we'd say that one aspect, uh, and, and many of these are exciting, right? So, so many of these have, have smaller elements where we believe growth is, is likely underestimated. But one of them is the, the way currently researching is, is the digitalization of the consumer and how that's happening in, in, in different parts of the world, but in, in smaller atomic business models that, are, that could be geography specific as it relates to countries that are late on the adoption curve or consumers where behavioral shifts haven't taken place to the extent that they have in certain other parts of the world. Okay, so I, I know I'll ask you two more questions and then, and then we'll wrap. So the first one is, is kind of lessons learned, particularly going back to connected commerce. 
what do you think are the learnings from an area that has been, as a generalization, overall consistently underestimated rather than overestimated? And we can observe that from the performance of many stocks, the share prices of many companies who are linked to this theme, but also in this sort of forecast for their revenue, which generally have been upgraded rather than downgraded. So there was an underestimation here. So why do you think that was and what are the lessons you're taking away from that? So perhaps at the first instance, Hugo, thinking about lessons learned, we maybe we'll use what you just mentioned uh, two questions ago, which is recombinant innovation. And we'd say often innovation or technology is incremental for the most part until there's a step function change at some point and then it becomes radical. So what does that mean or, or what's the case study here? We think about wider smartphone penetration, cheap access to and, and ubiquitous connectivity. So data access, especially in emerging markets. And as investors or a wide part of the investment community underestimating not the first level impact of that. So number of people in these countries who buy a smartphone or get connected, we have lots of data on that. But the second and tertiary impacts of wider smartphone adoption, that is likely one area or or aspect that has been underestimated, especially in in connected commerce-related business models in the emerging world. And we've often seen that either in South Asia, Southeast Asia, Latin America more recently. And perhaps the, the new unexplored investable opportunity is, is parts of Africa where connectivity is is still in its first few stages. So you'd say that's, that's probably underestimated at the first instance. The second aspect of, of what could we see from here or, or, or lessons that we could have learned is a change in consumer behavior as a result of this. So the ability to engage online, the ability to overcome either digital or vernacular language illiteracy, innovation around payment systems or smosses of technology, and then finally, innovation of, of localized solutions for localized problems in many of these markets. So it's often easy to paint a single brush suggesting that one global technology would likely penetrate and be adopted in its shape and form around the world. But we often see that as, as not being the case. So we underestimate the ability of local innovative companies to, to produce solutions that cater to their local markets and the durability of their competitive advantage sustaining over many, many years. That brings me to my final question, which is a tough one because, well, it's a tough one in the sense that it's hard to know. It's an easy one to answer because it's hard to prove you wrong. But give me some sort of moonshots. Give me some low probability but high impact things that could radically change the economy, the way we live, certainly change your your area technology more broadly what what are the kind of things that are maybe not visible today but are being worked on that could have an outsized impact if they come to fruition let's perhaps start with with the more obvious ones and then we can go to less obvious ones as as we think along here so at the first instance i'd say a faster rollout of of 5g which is the the newest communication technology perhaps can lead to new business models that don't necessarily exist today. So for the most part, we think this would be faster than than the current infrastructure, better experience, but similar to what we saw with 4G and ride hailing or food delivery, there could be new use cases here in terms of smart cities, fixed wireless, so social use cases of reaching parts of the population who don't have access to 
high-speed broadband internet today. And then areas like connected vehicles, so autonomous vehicles, connected cars, speaking with each other, and perhaps that leading to, to better safety outcomes or better efficiency outcomes. So, so that's maybe one area that, that we could crystal ball on. When we think of, of less obvious ones, let's think about broadly what, what's happened over the past year. I'd say as a result of, of the current environment, we've had a higher degree of personalization of oneself or increased personalization of, of technology within oneself. And, and here we can think about either wearable devices, we can think about smart dust, or even smart fabric for that matter, which may not be so much of a moonshot five years from now, especially if we have faster, cheaper, more ubiquitous connectivity. We could have many of us constantly connected, not just with one another, but with ourselves as well. And that data being used to either predict health outcomes or do other things that may lead us to, to eating healthier, exercising more, speaking with one another, connecting with those or, or predicting mental health issues, things like that. And then I'd say perhaps the other aspect of this, which, which we can also think about is is the commercialization of either drones, which isn't a moonshot anymore, but, but certainly has many challenges between what is done today in a more secure manner and what can be done where delivery packages arrive on a drone as opposed to being delivered by someone. So, so those are three or four examples of where we could see outsized impact to revenue pool creation or shifts in the future. I thought you were going to talk about space and maybe also companion robots, which would have made lockdown a lot easier for some people. Well, there's, there's always your closest video streaming service to learn more about those two, I'd say, at this point in time. True. Very true. Very true. Jay, I'm going to say thank you very much for coming on the show. It was a, a delight to have you. We covered a lot of stuff. And so thank you again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Active Share. To hear additional insights from William Blair Investment Management, visit us at blog.williamblair.com. The Active Share is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and TuneIn. For questions, comments, or topics you'd like to hear discussed, email us at podcastim at williamblair.com. This content is for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any security or to adopt any investment strategy. Investment advice and recommendations can be provided only after careful consideration of investors' objectives, guidelines, and restrictions. The views and opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of this recording, are subject to change without notice as economic and market conditions dictate, and may not reflect the views and opinions of other investment teams within William Blair Investment Management. Factual information has been obtained from sources we believe to be reliable, but its accuracy, completeness, or interpretation cannot be guaranteed. Any discussion of particular topics is not meant to be comprehensive and may be subject to change. This material may include forecasts, estimates, outlooks, projections, and other forward-looking statements. Due to a variety of factors, actual events may differ significantly from those presented. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. Any investment or strategy mentioned herein may not be suitable for every investor. References to specific companies are for illustrative purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any security. William Blair Investment Management may or may not own any securities of the companies referenced. It should not be assumed that any investment in the companies referenced was or will be profitable.